Exploring Mormon Thought features discussions about Mormon doctrine and theology that correlate with topics in the book series of the same name written by scholar and theologian Blake Osler. Find us online at exploringmormonthought.com and facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. Welcome back to Exploring Mormon Thought. This week we are going into chapter 9, which is continuing our discussion of the new perspective on Paul. It's titled Self-Deception and Justification by Faith. So the first section is called the new perspective on Paul, and we did talk a lot about that last week, so we're going to get into some different aspects of it, though. So again, just kind of an overview of what we covered last week is that the new perspective on Paul, the new part of the perspective is that It takes the writings of Paul and puts them in context of what he was actually talking about. I'll start with this quote, and then I'll I'll read a couple things, and then we'll discuss. So, one enters the covenant relationship, or is justified before God by grace through faith, but the faith that justifies requires good deeds to maintain the covenant status. Paul is not addressing how a sinner stands before the holy God, but how Gentiles can be included within the covenant on the basis of faith in Christ rather than by works of the law of Moses. So I guess that right there is the difference. So the debate about the new perspective on Paul is kind of the way that Lutherans and like Reformed Calvinists interpreted the letters of Paul. And as we went over last week, it's not talking about a sinner that stands before God and how he can enter into salvation that way. It was talking about trying to understand where and how the works or the law of Moses from the Jews could fit into Christianity, or whether Gentiles could come into the Christianity, and if they still had to maintain the law of Moses, if that was still relevant or not. And that's kind of the main theme of what Paul talks about. Let me just interject for a second. I, I think it's, it's imperative to keep in mind that the earliest Christians were largely still Jews. The break between Judaism and Christianity really didn't occur until later, I would say, it began to occur almost immediately with Paul. But the, the questions they had were questions that Jews would have about the relationship between what Christ had taught and the religion that they maintained. And remember, Christ was a Jew. Reading the New Testament, one could not fail to recognize that Christ's concerns were the concerns of Jews. And the Jews were constantly raising, well, you know, what's the relation to the Sabbath? Well, what's our relation to the governing authorities? Well, what do we have to do to to be saved? I mean, all of these kinds of questions were being raised again. And even in Acts, to the extent that Luke is giving us a historical recollection, the earliest Christians continued to go to the Jewish temple. For, for all we can see, they continued to do sacrifices. They didn't really understand that Christ was the great last sacrifice. They continued to participate in the Jewish temple and in the Jewish holidays. And so Christianity became defined initially as kind of just a, a subset of Judaism, and then over time defined itself apart from Judaism. But Paul is the one who is starting this questioning in earnest because he sees himself as having been called to the Gentiles. And so one of the first questions he is facing is, well, how does one get into Christianity? Does one have to be circumcised? 
once circumcised, does one have to adopt the Jewish dietary and table fellowship laws? So these were real questions that had to be answered by a Jewish person who saw Christianity still as largely Jewish, but then confronting the reality of Gentiles who probably really didn't want to be circumcised and who didn't want to follow the law of Moses. And the question was a very real, live question for them. And, you know, we had at least two councils of the early church leaders to kind of define and then redefine, you know, the, the first and second councils at, at uh, Jerusalem, where James, the brother of Jesus, is, is recognized essentially as the leader and kind of the moderate mediator of the parties. And so that's the kind of environment in which Paul is asking these questions and the new perspective on Paul is recognizing that in order to, to understand what Paul is talking about, we have to put him back in the Jewish context that it arises out of. The second thing that we have to recognize is that one of the great redefinitions that occurred in Christianity occurred with Augustine adopting a view of original sin that was, frankly, a misreading of Paul. And making original sin and the kind of depravity that humans exist in as a result of original sin, kind of the focus of Christianity, and then redefining Paul's view of grace over against this new view of original sin. Luther and Calvin and the other Protestants read Paul through the Augustinian lens. And so they began their interpretation of Paul looking at Paul through the lens of this is the human predicament. We suffer from original sin and we are depraved, meaning that we can't do anything that is pleasing to God. And so it gets put into the context of how can a person possibly be saved if their will is and, and their soul is so corrupted that we really can't choose to do anything pleasing to God. And if that's the case, only God could overcome our obstinance. And so the Protestant view of, of salvation by irresistible grace will overcome even our obstinate will in order to save us, where God saves some and, and doesn't save others as a result of his predestination. This is a redefinition of Paul. And so the new perspective of Paul is basically the effort of, of a number of Pauline scholars to put Paul back into his original Jewish context where the issues that Paul is dealing with instead of the issues that Augustine and later Luther and Calvin were dealing with become the focus. And so this is a necessary corrective to kind of what I would call the, the Protestant misunderstanding of Paul. All right, good. And then to go kind of more into that, you say the main difference is the point of view of whose Paul interlocutor is. And as I understand as interlocutor, just like basically who he's addressing, is that what that means? Yeah, and the interlocutory is, is somebody that you engage in with, with either in a debate or in a conversation where somebody doesn't share your point of view. And interlocutory is somebody who says, yeah, but what about this? And so you're talking with them in a way of attempting to convince them and persuade them. All right, and then to point out like Luther's point of view, say Luther supposes that Paul's interlocutor is a Jew who insists that justification is accomplished by works of righteousness and by keeping the law of Moses, and thus as a form of auto-salvation or self-earned salvation by works. So Luther's viewing it through the lens that 
Paul's trying to convince a Jew that has that view, and that's what kind of what leads to their point of view, is they're like, oh, well, Paul's just see, he's sitting here trying to convince someone that the works won't save you, it's grace that saves you, and bada bing, bada boom, you're saved by grace, not by works. Yeah, the, all except for the bada bing, bada boom. But yeah, I mean, the, the bottom line is, is that Luther, Calvin, and Augustine, they understood that Paul was a Jew, and so they thought that he was addressing a Jew who was insisting on being saved pursuant to the law of Moses by following the law of Moses, when, in fact, that's not what he's addressing. He's not addressing somebody. And here's what happened. E.P. Saunders, who basically was the, the fountainhead of the new perspective on Paul, recognized and this as a result in part of the fact that in the Dead Sea Scrolls, he noticed in the Manual of Discipline, there were passages sounded a lot, I mean, and they're clearly very Jewish because this is a Jewish document, hyper-Jewish document, some would say. And yet they're talking about justification by grace and by God's mercy. And what he recognized is, hold it, the Jews also believed in, in a religion of grace. They agree on that. This isn't something that is something that separates Paul from the Jews. There's an agreement on that. The distinction is somewhere else. And so E.P. Saunders reviewed the, the writings of Paul and, and determined that's not really who he's addressing at all. This is an issue on which Judaism and Paul agree. What he's actually addressing is how does one become a part of the covenant people? What, do, what does one have to do in order to get into the identity of being God's covenant people? And once in the covenant, what does one have to do in order to maintain that covenant? That's the real issue that Paul is addressing. And so it's really a reassessment of Paul, a misunderstanding as to both what the Jewish interlocutor that Paul is supposedly addressing is saying in his writings, and also, you know, what the real issue is that, that he's addressing with the Jews. Because Paul is still defining Christianity in terms of Judaism. I think it's got to be obvious to anybody who reads his letters. Paul is a very Jewish writer, and his interests and concerns arise out of Judaism. And again, the ultimate issue that he's addressing is. How can God remain and be honorable and righteous in terms of keeping covenant when he's no longer recognizing Israel as his covenant people? Because that was his covenant, was to recognize Israel as his people. So how does God maintain his honor in light of the fact that he's now abandoned, essentially, Israel? And he has a new people that he's called to be Israel, and that's the Christian community or, or the, you know, the body of Christians at his time. And so now he's asking the question, well, if that's the case, well, what does it mean to be the covenant people? How does one become a part of this people? And what does it mean once I'm in this? How do I maintain my status as a part of this people? That's the issue. All right. And then the same person that you talked about, that's a leading scholar on the new perspective on Paul, E.P. Sanders. He came up with a term called covenantal nomism. And so what that is, it's a pattern of religion that states that entrance into the covenant is by grace and maintenance of the covenant relationship is by abiding by the commandments of the covenant. And another quote that just kind of drives that home. Scholars are saying the covenant stipulates what God has commanded them to do to maintain fidelity to the covenant relationship. So works of the law are necessary to remain in the covenant relationship. Jews thus observe the commandments of the law out of love and gratitude to honor God and not as a means of earning salvation. That's more the back to the, the original Jewish point of view before Christ. And so, like I said, these two things are in congruence. They're not at odds with each other. 
And so using this covenantal gnomism, the same thing applies with Christ. The covenant is entered through faith in Christ as a matter of grace, and the covenant is maintained by keeping the new commandment, known as the law of love, by doing works of love. Yeah, so that's a shorthand for how covenantal gnomism, or the new perspective on Paul, became retranslated in the Christian community. So the covenant people are now the Christian believers. The covenant is now redefined in terms of faithfulness in Christ, and maintenance in the covenant is defined by keeping the new law that Jesus gave in terms of the law of love, and the works of the law of love are simply doing loving works. It's a very ill-defined, and when I say ill-defined, I mean undefined covenant. Because what one does to express love for others is not defined. And so it leaves it to a person to follow the Spirit to know what we are called to do by love. All right, great. And then also another point to the new perspective on Paul is kind of the idea of predestination. And, you know, if you know about like hardline Calvinist views, they have a view that a certain number of people are predestined to be saved. And God, as far as we know, arbitrarily has chosen them. And there's nothing we can do whatsoever to change that. But those people that are chosen will do good works. And that's why everyone tries to do good works, just to hope that they're part of that. But you're saying the new perspective on Paul tends to support more the Arminian interpretations of election as kind of a corporate election, meaning it doesn't support the individual as predestined to salvation or damnation. It's the predestination in this case, means that God has promised an inheritance to those who are found in Christ among the body of saints. Whereas before, the people of the covenant were just being born Jews or being born into that covenant which God made back in the time of Abraham. But now, those found in the covenant are found in Christ. And the body of the saints as a whole has been elected and predestined to glory among many brethren, but no particular individual is necessarily destined to be a part of that body. So saying the predestination means... Followers of Christ are predestined, or destined, I don't know if you need to say pre, but that body, whoever it is, is destined to be saved, but who is among those people is not necessarily decided yet. Yeah, and just two corrections. Uh, I know what you mean, and but first of all, Abraham wasn't Jewish, and so it, it's not a matter of who's a Jew. And in fact, Paul makes a big point about going back to Abraham because he's not Israel going back and recognizing that God made a covenant with Abraham, who was not an Israelite. So the covenant idea of covenant and who his covenant people are predates the Israelite people. And so that serves his narrative of saying the chosen ones who are chosen by God in covenant are not necessarily always Israel, because Abraham was not an Israelite. And this is long before the Israelites were defined as a people, and certainly long before the Jewish people were defined as a people. And so he looks at Abraham and the faith that he manifested as the type of the Christian people who are now saved by the same kind of faith that Abraham manifested. And that's because Abraham's faith was independent of the covenant that God made with Israel. But nevertheless, he had a covenant with God, and his descendants became the covenant people. So he uses Abraham as that kind of a symbol, if you will, or a type of what he's actually talking about with the Christians becoming God's covenant people. And the important point here is that what I would say from a logical point of view is that Augustine and Calvin and Luther all committed the logical error of composition. And that is that a a large nation of people isn't the same thing as a nation of large people. Or you could say it this way, 
Delaware has the highest income on average of any state in the union. This man is from Delaware, therefore he must be rich. That's just a mistake. What's true of the entire body of people, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's true of every member of that body or every person. So what Augustine and Calvin and, and Luther did is they mistook the fact that individuals would be predestined to be God's people when, in fact, the predestination is simply saying that, look, if you are found in Christ, then you are destined to be among God's people. It's that kind of a judgment. It's not the judgment that, well, if you believe in Christ, then you were predestined to be saved and others weren't. That's simply a logical mistake, and the logical fallacy of composition is precisely the fallacy that they committed. All right. Okay, and then this next part, I'll just briefly brush on just to introduce it, but you'll get a lot more into it into the next section with Jacob. But with this quote, the point is that the sin that resides within us through self-deception is deeper than the actions we perform, because the same act can be done in either a self-justifying way or in an open-hearted way. Again, we'll get more into this in a second, but this is just introducing the idea that the difference between works. He's not saying that you shouldn't do works. He's just saying that works don't mean anything if you have the wrong attitude about it. And I, I think this is addressed, you know, openly in the Bible, saying like, don't let your I don't remember which hand, probably your left hand, and know what your right hand is doing when you're giving alms or whatever. Just meaning, if you're doing a good deed to show everyone else and to prove to yourself how much better you are than everyone else, then you've kind of defeated the purpose of that. And that's kind of what he's getting against. Like, works don't save you if your heart is not in the right place. And we'll talk more about that in the next section. But Yeah, and I love the way that you brought that in, because it's a central teaching of Christ that those who who do good works to be seen so that they can be honored of men, are hypocrites. And that's precisely the kind of thing that Christ was concerned about. It's not that the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't give a lot of money or that they didn't do good things. It's that they did it for the wrong reason. They did it so that they would get noticed. And I don't, you know, I'm sure that there were good Sadducees and good Pharisees, but those are kind of the monikers that are used in the New Testament for this kind of disease where people are self-deceived into thinking they're righteous, even though what they're really doing is being self-centered, self-absorbed, and selfish. All right, and then uh, one last point here before we go to the next section. We're going to talk about justification. And I guess just to kind of back up, just for my sake, and maybe I hope, hopefully some of the readers have the same concern or misunderstanding, but does the term justification in this context mean kind of the same thing that we mean in English when we justify ourselves, we're saying this is the reason why I am actually worthy or something like that. So like why the term justification in English to mean what we're saying when we're saying basically referring to salvation, right? Yeah, and, and it's so misleading for us to say, well, you know, you've been justified. It's more like saying you've been loved. And it you know, you can say, well, I'm loved because I'm worthy of love, but that's not really what it's about. It's about the fact that the person who loves you is a loving person. And in this case, the righteousness at issue isn't our righteousness, it's God's righteousness. And so being justified means that God has, and I think this is the best way to translate it into English, God loves us unconditionally and is always ready and willing to accept us into a relationship the moment that we are willing to accept the love that he gives to us. And there are no conditions. He doesn't say, well, in order for me to love you, you've got to do X, Y, and Z first. 
No, he already loves us. He's already accomplished everything necessary for our salvation before we were born. And so justification is a sheer gift. God gives it to us because he is honorable to keep his promises, keep the covenant that he made with Israel that is now transferred to the Christian community. God is honorable and loving because he is always willing to accept us into the type of relationship that will move us forward. And salvation does mean essentially to be saved from those things that seek our destruction, but it also means more than that. Salvation means that we are found in a relationship with God that is healing and that will move us forward to being in the full image of Christ. Okay, so to be justified means that we now enter into this relationship. But it's like marriage. I mean, you do a marriage ceremony, and you're now justified in that relationship. You've been found to be worthy of being in that relationship. But anybody who thinks that you go do a marriage ceremony, and then you've got a successful marriage, doesn't understand what marriage is about. And it's the same thing with being a Christian. The mere fact that one is justified has entered into this appropriate relationship with Christ through his sheer grace, the gift that he gives us of his unconditional love. That doesn't mean that that's the end of the relationship and there's nothing more to it. The relationship with Christ now enters into a phase of what we could call sanctification. That is growth in the light of Christ over a period of time in which we learn to embody the light of Christ into us. And so it's a very different view than just, you know, I've been saved and I can tell you the day I was saved and that's the total truth and everything I have to say about Christianity. Uh, and I know people often get that kind of view of evangelicals because they harp on this notion. I, you know, they can tell you the moment they were saved, the day, time, and so forth. But that too would, if you start talking to them about, well, do you believe you're going to be judged by works? Well, of course, everybody believes that. Well, do you believe that there's more to do to be saved than just, you know, being accepted by by grace? I think most of them would say, no, I've been saved. I don't have to do anything more to it. And that's true. It's like being born as a Jew. It would be like asking, do I have to do anything more than being born into a Jewish family in order to be part of the covenant people? And the answer is, well, no, but there's more to the covenant than that. <laughs> there's more of being a Christian than just being saved by grace. And so that's the kind of, of clarification that I want to make. Okay. So there's two important truths that you point out in the book that we get from the doctrine of justification. And those two truths are, one, we don't need to justify ourselves if we accept Christ's gracious offer to be united in covenant love with him, like we just discussed. And two, we cannot justify ourselves. If we try to justify ourselves by works of the law or any works that attempt to earn God's grace, then all we're doing is showing that we don't really believe that God is honorable or righteous. And why, why is that? Why would that be showing God that we don't believe that he's honorable or righteous? A way of retranslating that is saying we don't believe that God's really loving, that he would just love me without me having to earn it. Again, God loves us because he's loving. It's not that I had to go out there and show that I was worthy of his love by doing some great act that would earn his love. Anybody who tries to earn unconditional love doesn't understand what unconditional love is. All right, fair enough. All right, now we're going to move into juxtaposing Paul's ideas with another apostle, Jesus' brother, James. So, Jacob, go ahead and tell us about James as a critique of self-deceived Paulinism. Yeah, so um, we can't be too hard on people that have sort of misunderstood Paul um, before this new perspective on Paul and and thinking that Paul was saying that grace is completely given and that, you know, no works are ever needed uh, because we have in the Bible itself James 
uh, seems to be addressing the same distortion of Paul's teachings about justification by faith that we've heard. He seeks to correct a distortion that derives from the slogan, justification by faith alone. Do you want to go into that a little bit? Sure. So very early in Christianity, you had people who were concluding, well, if I'm saved by grace, and there's nothing more that I have to do. It's a sheer gift. They were called libertines, by the way. Then I'm not going to do anything. I don't have to. I've already earned everything uh, that I need to as a matter of grace. And so uh, I want to make two observations. First is the amazing reality that it's not really an epistle. It's more of a pamphlet, that the pamphlet of James actually is written by the brother of Jesus. And it's very clear to me, at least, that there is extremely compelling evidence to demonstrate that fact because the epistle of James doesn't know any of the works of the New Testament. It's written before any of the works of the New Testament have really been reduced to writing. And even more amazing than that, it knows Christ, or Jesus rather, but only in a preliterate form. In other words, what it knows are, are the what we would call the logia or sayings of Jesus, the kind of thing that would be found in the Q source. And that's exactly what we would find with the brother of Jesus writing kind of a pamphlet to Christians. The second thing is, James is addressing Christians themselves who seem to think that, you know, I've accepted Christ and so I've done what I need to. And what he's, talk, he's talking th- through this pamphlet, Christians who were rich and wealthy, but who were not providing substance to the poor Christians. And so James is observing, you know, you call yourselves Christians, and the fact is, is your works show that you're not really Christians at all. And you say you have faith, but your works show that you're just self-deceived about the fact that you think you have faith. And so that's what he's addressing, are people who claim to be Christian, but were not keeping the terms of the covenant to remain in Christ. And he is already addressing their justification. Apparently, their justification was that they were saying that they were saved by faith and not by works. And the only other work in the entire early Christian corpus or any of the writings available in the first century that uses this phrase, justification by faith alone, outside of the genuine epistles of Paul and the Pauline epistles like Ephesians and Colossians, is this letter of James. And so it would be remarkable indeed if James weren't directly addressing this slogan that's derived from the writings of Paul and what he's addressing now are Gentiles and Christians who are using this slogan to avoid being true Christians. So this is a remarkable background, and we know that the work, at least I'm extremely convinced that that this work is actually written by the brother of our Lord, and he's addressing this issue for us in in the best way that he knows how by saying, I'm sorry, you say we've got faith, guess what, you don't. Okay, Uh, I'm just curious. Do you think James thought that, did James misunderstand Paul? Or does he think that, you know, everyone else is saying, you know, you guys are listening to Paul, but you're not getting it. This is what Paul's actually trying to say. He's not really addressing Paul directly. He's addressing a slogan derived from Paul. The slogan is justification by faith alone. It may be ironic because we hear that that phrase is kind of the key phrase in, in the Reformation as well. But he's simply addressing a slogan. And I think what he's saying If he knows Paul's writings at all, I think in essence what he's saying is you don't understand Paul either. You don't understand what he's saying. And so he's not addressing Paul directly. He's addressing a distortion of Paul, possibly, but certainly addressing the slogan derived from Paul that says, I have faith because I'm justified by faith alone. And he's saying that's not how it works. Okay. So if he was familiar with Paul's writings, you don't think he would find the same 
distortion in there, he would be reading and be like, oh, no, Paul's on the right track. I don't think that James knows Paul's writings. Remember, Paul's letters were sent to, you know, Gentiles in Rome and other cities. And making copies of his letters was probably done among Gentiles, but James is almost certainly solely among the, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And so I don't think he knows directly Paul's writings. He doesn't quote them directly. He's addressing a slogan derived from Paul. He certainly knew Paul. And he probably heard this statement from Paul himself about being justified by faith alone. So he understands that it derives from Paul. And I'm not sure he was all that thrilled with Paul in some ways because Paul was kind of a troublemaker. But I think that he would recognize that this is a distortion even of Paul's teachings. In other words, this isn't what Paul really teaches. You're using his slogan, but you're misusing it. And it's certainly not an appropriate way to use it to understand the truth about the relationship between faith and works is what he's saying. All right. So let's dive into to James, where he, uh, he takes it on there. So his key question is, and this is in James 2.26, What doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say that he hath faith and not works? Can faith save him? Then James answers emphatically, no. Rather than delivering the believer to life, such faith without works is dead. Yeah, what he's saying is it's not really faith at all. What you call faith is a distortion, is what James is saying. And so this is the question that he's addressing, at least in the first three chapters of what we call the Epistle of James. Again, I think it was basically a kind of a missive that was written and made available to Christians quite widely. Okay. And then you bring up that the key point in the entire discussion that James makes is a distinction between self-deceived faith and genuine faith. And what is that distinction? James himself uses the term self-deceived. He says in uh, the first chapter of the epistle, as a matter of fact, again, I'm going to call it a missive. You say that you have faith, but it's a self-deceived faith. He uses the very Greek term for self-deceived. What he means by self-deceived is you, you think you're righteous and, and you think that you have faith, but in fact, you're just being self-absorbed and you're fooling yourselves. You really don't have anything like real faith. And so self-deception about faith is the very center of what James is addressing. And he's saying that people misunderstand the slogan, justification by faith, by excusing themselves. Now, this is a general tendency, and, and here this is a universal tendency. This is extremely important. Anything good and true can be distorted through self-deception. We can take anything and turn it into a self-serving, self-deceived message. And so the fact that Paul is being used this way isn't all that surprising. Let me give an example. We've used this one before. I was writing this book on divine love, and your mom came and asked me to assist you ki- to put you kids to bed. And I was a little miffed because it's like, well, I'm right in the middle of this, and if she really understood how important a book on divine love was, she'd just take care of it herself. Then I caught myself. I, I literally laughed out loud at just how ridiculous and absurd that was. And I could have gone upstairs and, you know, I've, I've done this before. You know how you do. I go and I help with the kids and I tuck you into bed. I do it in a huff and, and like, oh, you're, I'm, I'm just so put out. And I just show how really a burden this is that she just can't do this herself. I'm doing good acts. I'm assisting with the kids. Or I can go upstairs you know, where you kids were and get out the books and, and read to you because I love you and because it was the, one of the greatest parts of my life. And I can do this in a way that isn't self-deceived. 
I can do it in a genuine, loving way. It's the very same act, but I can do it in a way that is, is a self-deception. The Christians were doing, you know, they were being Christians. They, they gave some to the poor. They just weren't giving sufficient, according to James. And so their, their works proved that the, what the faith that they thought they had was a self-deceived faith. They were being Christians in a self-deceived way. We can be self-deceived about anything good. Humans have this amazing capacity to take anything good and to twist it through self-deception into something that's really pretty manipulative and evil. Okay, yeah, and it sounds like uh, what you're describing is what we would commonly say. We're just going through the motions. I mean, we're doing the act, but our heart's not really in it. We're just doing it just because. Well, I'm, it's not really going through the motions in this sense. I'm actually trying to make a, send the message of how put out I am that you've imposed upon me. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we, we do this all of the time in our relationships. And so I think it's, it's important to recognize just how profound what James is addressing really is when he's addressing self-deception. All right. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to um, Paul versus James on Abraham, because it seems like the views on Abraham's faith, uh, whether it is or isn't enough at certain points, uh, is a bit of a disagreement between the two. Yeah, and this may be, I don't think that, that James is addressing Paul's writings per se, but very likely he heard Paul's views from Paul himself. And he heard Paul use the faith of Abraham as an instance of the kind of, of faith to maintain covenant without being a part of Israel that he has in mind. And Paul and James, they agree with each other on what it means to have a genuine faith. But James certainly sees Abraham's faith differently than Paul does. Paul sees Abraham's faith as fully sufficient for his justification before God without doing anything more. James, in contrast, believes that if you don't put Abraham's faith in the context of what he did out of faith, that is, the arrested sacrifice of his son Isaac, without putting it into that context, you don't understand Abraham's faith. And so James is insistent, no, you can't say you have faith just by having faith. If faith is all by itself, faith alone, it doesn't even exist as faith. It's dead. In order to have faith, it has to be manifest in a life and in what you do. You can see if you have genuine faith by looking at how it's manifest in your life. You can't claim faith just by saying, well, I've got faith. And a faith that is isolated by itself from the rest of a person's life is a distortion of what it means to have faith, according to James. When Paul writes, however, he doesn't put Abraham's faith in the context of the works that, that Abraham did to manifest his faith. And so I think that James here is actually giving a corrective to Paul's approach to faith. Again, I don't believe that it's, a, it's like a directly addressing Romans or Galatians or anything like that. I think he's addressing the oral tradition that he heard himself from Paul in Paul explaining his view of Abraham's faith, and, and James is saying to Paul, essentially, I'm pretty sure you don't get what Abraham's faith was unless you put it in the context of his life. Okay. So, uh, yeah, you bring up that thus faith, when James is talking about it, has to be translated more as a faithful obedience, where the concepts of works, trust, belief, faithfulness, fidelity, and love are all tied together in this word, faith. Yeah, the word in Greek is pistis, and it, and it means essentially this kind of total manifestation in one's life of what the faith is. So pistis is a much richer word, 
But we have to recognize that, you know, even in the context of Paul's own works in Galatians 5 and 6, Paul is very clear that the kind of faith he has in mind is the faith that works by love. That's a quote from Galatians 5 and 6. And so this is something that I think Paul would have agreed with James on, and maybe against those extreme Protestants who insist that if you say that faith is manifest by works, then you're saying again that there's no real salvation. They're distorting the message of Paul and of James and Christianity. Okay. All right, uh, so moving on, we'll go on to the next section where now we, we take a look at Mormonism and the new perspective on Paul, you know, how, how those mesh together, starting with some verses from D&C 20. And we know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true. And we know also that sanctification through the grace of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is just and true to all who love and serve God with all their might, minds, and strength. But there's a possibility that man may fall from grace and depart from the living God. Therefore, let the church take heed and pray always, lest they fall into temptation. Yea, and even let those who are sanctified take heed also. So this is extremely significant. These are the articles of the church. This is the earliest statement of faith, and what is now section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants was intended to be kind of the articles of faith that they were writing at the time. So this is a foundational statement for the church. And recognize how unique this is in, in Mormonism, because this is one of the very few places in any Mormon writings that adopt the terminology of Protestant Christianity straight across, and adopts it in a way that would be faithful to Methodism. So let me translate this. We know that justification through the grace of our Lord and Jesus Christ is just and true. Note that justification is by sheer grace, <laughs> okay? It's a gift. It doesn't have the gloss on it that is made with sanctification. We also know that sanctification through grace is just and true to all those who serve God with all their height, might, mind, and strength. So sanctification is like maintaining the covenant relationship by one's total commitment to God. You enter this relationship through justification, which is a sheer gift, but you maintain it by total commitment to God. So this is kind of a restatement, if you will, of the new perspective on Paul or covenantal gnomism. But it's also straightforward, and it rejects the Calvinist doctrine of eternal security outright. It's also rejecting the notion that there's nothing further to do after one is saved through justification. So it's rejecting a couple of the pillars of Calvinism. But when it says that a man may fall from grace, what it means is that one does not have eternal security. Eternal security is the doctrine of once saved, always saved. And that goes hand in hand with predestination. Once God has overcome your obstinate will through irresistible grace to save you, you're secure because it wasn't a matter of your choice anyway. It was God's choice. He actually acted upon you to do something that was contrary to your own will in order to save you. And now that he saved you, it's not your will that keeps you saved. It's God who keeps you saved. You know, there's nothing wishy-washy about God. If he's chosen to save you, darn it, you're saved. This is rejecting that kind of a view. It's rejecting the view that Calvinists had. The Presbyterians, you know, the, the kind of thing that Joseph Smith rejected that his mother and his, his siblings were doing and going to the Presbyterian church, he was partial to the Methodists. And this shows how partial to the Methodists he actually is, because this is simple, straightforward Methodism. They rejected those pillars of Calvinism also. So understanding how this is working and, and what it means is very important. But I think just the recognition that we have this one place very early on in the church that is using this kind of Protestant nomenclature and verbiage 
is, you know, it's important to understand that, that in the earliest statements, Mormonism was defined and it was defining itself vis-a-vis the vocabulary of Protestant Christianity. All right. And again, you're saying there that, and we've talked about this before, but salvation is secure in LDS thought uh, because everyone is saved through the atonement of Jesus Christ and through grace. And you add in, even though they, they may suffer wrath for a time, there's only one sin that's sufficient to cause one to fall from grace in LDS thought. That's open rebellion against Christ. Or in DNC 76, it's the, you know, the sons of perdition that are talked about. Yeah, I think what's important to recognize here is that the salvation is universal in Mormonism. Everybody is saved. Everybody will eventually bow the knee and confess that Jesus is the Christ, and everybody who does that is is redeemed from the fall. And what that means is, is that salvation is universal. However, even though everybody's saved, there may be some who thereafter reject the salvation. And even though everybody gets saved, there are some few who are going to then reject the gift that's being given to them of universal salvation. Now, what this means is, of course, that we have to make a distinction between justification in which everybody recognizes Jesus as the Christ. And this is how DNC 76 is set up. In DNC 76, one is redeemed and saved merely by recognizing Jesus as the Christ. That's all. One merely has to confess that, and one is, is redeemed and saved. However, there's a lot more that goes on after one is redeemed and saved, and that is the process of growing in the light of Christ, or, to put it a different way, the process of sanctification. And so the process of sanctification isn't simply based upon, you know, the fact that everybody is saved. It's based upon the fact that after that, there are those who will go further and give their entire heart, mind, and strength to God. And that's what it requires. A person has to be, the terminology in DNC 76 is, a person has to be valued at the testimony of Christ in order to be exalted. All right. uh, So just to quick recap. The justification is the actual confession of Christ, which we are then saved by his grace. And there's, it's grace because we didn't do anything to earn it. We're just confessing that he's the Christ. And once justified, we're secure unless we come out and open a rebellion against Christ. Um, you also said here, though, that Paul interpreted coming out in open rebellion against Christ to be relying on the law of Moses rather than on Christ for salvation after one has expressed faith in Christ. Yeah, for Paul, one rejected Christ if one—and this is what was happening. There had been a number of Jews who had confessed Christ and become part of the Christian body, but they lapsed and went back to either just simply being Jews or being Christians but demanding that Christians keep the law of Moses. Now, this is how the rubber hits the road for Paul. Paul is very sensitive about those Gentile converts that he's bringing into the church, and he doesn't believe that the obligations of the law of Moses should be laid upon them. And there are those Christians who refuse table fellowship to the new Gentile converts. They refuse to eat with them. They say that they have to be circumcised. And Paul says that the Christians who demand that of the new Gentile converts have actually rejected Christ because their faith is actually in the law of Moses, not in Christ. One, in fact, is saved by Christ, and that is sufficient. One doesn't need the law of Moses and being obedient to the law of Moses in order to be found in Christ. All right. And you said that you know these ideas were introduced very early in the church and Mormonism. And then again, you know, just as more evidence, I won't read the verses, but the uh, listeners can go read them if they want. In Moroni chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, we get this doctrine of sanctification as we've been talking about it. 
expressed and described once again. Everybody ought to go read that. It's such a beautiful expression of the doctrine, and not just the doctrine, but the, the lived experience of sanctification and what it means. And Moroni's words here are so poetic and powerful that I really urge those who are listening to us to go read that. Again, Moroni 10, 32 through 33, it's just, it's just a majestic scripture. All right. Now let's talk a little bit about the faith that's involved with sanctification, a faith that is inherent in such a trust in Christ that it must be manifest in a willingness to be baptized and enter into a covenant to bring forth works of love. Yeah, it would be passing strange to say, you know, I have faith in Christ, I believe Christ, and I confess that I'm saved by Christ, and I know that he's asked me to be baptized, but I don't trust him that far. I don't trust him to do what he says to do. That's actually a a point that Nephi makes in 2 Nephi. The faith that that Paul has in mind in Christ is manifest in doing what Christ has asked us to do because we recognize that Christ is our Lord and out of simple gratitude for what he's done to us. So we're baptized not in order to do a work, not in order to earn salvation, but out of love and obedience to Christ because he's asked us to do so. And of course, there's a lot more to baptism in terms of becoming identified with Christ through baptism and becoming a Christian. There's a lot more to it and you know, in the symbolism. But the fact is, is, it would be a mistake to say that baptism is a necessary condition of salvation. It would be more appropriate to say baptism necessarily follows faith in Christ because without doing what Christ asks us to do, we don't have faith in Christ. Okay. You also cite some verses in Mosiah 18, and these are the only verses I'm aware of that give a little bit more into you know, our part of being baptized. It's not just being accepted by Christ again and being like, yay, that, that's, that's great and all, but you know, we, we must be willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort and stand as witnesses as God at all times and in all things and in all places. Let me point out something. I mean, these verses in Mosiah 18 and 8 through 10 about the covenant that we make with God when we're baptized is extremely significant for a number of reasons. First, one is not baptized here in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. This is not a Christian baptism or not a fully Christian baptism. They didn't understand fully the nature of baptism when Alma was doing this ordinance of baptism. And he didn't see it merely as an ordinance or a rite. Instead, this was a covenant with God. This is the covenant that one is making and expresses what is required by the law of love in being baptized. And so what we have here is kind of a pre-Christian notion of baptism, if you will. I would point out there was kind of a a similar pre-Christian notion of baptism at Qumran, the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But it's, it's so important, I think, to recognize that Book of Mormon people saw baptism as a covenant, and this goes hand in hand with covenantal nomism, because the covenant, though, that is entering is an expression of what one does in order to maintain the law of love defined by Christ, defined in terms of mourning with those that mourn, giving comfort to those that stand in need of comfort, and being a witness of Christ. And so it just In my view, this is an extremely powerful expression of covenantal gnomism or the new perspective on Paul. Excellent. Uh, Well, on that, I think we'll swing back over to Corey to uh, to go over some conclusions. Okay, yeah, um, just 
one subject and then we'll just kind of sum up, I guess. So you just ask, in conclusion, you say, why is there this resounding silence about justification by grace in the LDS tradition? And, you know, early on we talked about it, but then we just kind of didn't talk about it directly anymore. And so one idea that you put forth is it's probably along the lines of that Mormonism is kind of viewed in juxtaposition to Christianity, kind of in the same way that Christianity was viewed in juxtaposition to Judaism back when Christ first came. So it's this difference between still encompassing the old religion, but also making it anew. And so it's saying, where do we stand in relation to this other religion that we came from? And so, you know, because Mormonism is obviously coming from Christianity directly, but it is completely a new religion at the same time. So you say the striking fact that the LDS scriptures do not adopt the identifying phrases of Paul related to justification by grace is not necessarily a rejection of creedal Christianity, but more of a critique of it. And kind of the problem with conventional Christians for example, is not so much that they got the doctrines of salvation wrong, but that even while getting them right, they engage in self-deceived self-righteousness. They rely upon the arm of flesh, even while claiming to rely on Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. And then you'd point out that this was part of the very answer that Joseph Smith got when he received the first vision was that the creeds are all an abomination in the sight of God, because what they do is they're you know, they have a form of godliness, and they draw close to me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. And that's back to what we talked about before, about doing something with not having your heart be in the right place when you do it. Yeah, so I think that the reason that we don't have the kind of standard terminology that was adopted as a reminder by Augustine and then later by Luther and Calvin about justification by faith or grace alone Really, after DNC 20, we don't have anything that talks in those terms. And I think that that is a demarcation to say, you know, we're not them. (laughs) But what I want to say about Protestant Christianity isn't that they got everything wrong. What I want to say is that in what they got right, they were still self-deceived about what is happening with God's people. Look at it from Joseph Smith's perspective, because it's the same kind of thing. God's people is no longer defined by those who define themselves as having been saved by grace at some certain moment or or attending some particular denomination. It's now defined by those who are willing to listen to God's new revelation through the prophet and to receive their direct revelation that he is the prophet. The people of God is no longer defined by belonging to the continuation of the tradition as Catholics see it, but by those who are willing to listen to God's continuing voice as he speaks. And the problem with Catholicism and and Protestantism and every other form of Christianity is not that they get all the doctrines wrong. What's important, in fact, isn't even the doctrines. What's important is that God is still speaking, and it is imperative to listen to his voice as he speaks. And when he gives us new revelations and asks us to do things that we're called upon to do, that's what defines God's people. What defines God's people is those who are willing to abide by his commands as a living, ongoing, breathing type of a relationship. That's how Joseph Smith saw it. And so the notion that Mormonism, and I would say Mormonism does stand in relation to traditional Christianity as Christianity stood in relation to Judaism. It is something that grows out of it, 
but certainly isn't fully defined by it, and Mormonism defines itself over against that kind of Christianity. And it's not to say, look, we're so bright, we do better biblical scholarship than you do, and we get all the doctrines right, and you get them all wrong. That's not what it's about at all. The difference is God is still speaking, and we're listening, and you're not. And so that's kind of the demarcation as I see it. Okay, cool. All right, and then I'm just going to read the last two quotes, and then you can have the final word on saying what you want about them. But I think these both kind of sum up what we're getting at here. You say, let us never deceive ourselves into believing that we can have the joy and glory that come only from being in an intimate relationship of fellowship love with God without keeping his commandments. If we believe that we can simply trust God once in our lives and all is done, then we have failed to grasp the type of relationship that he seeks to have with us. Our faith must be joined to works of love to be the faith that saves us in the sense that we can enter into fellowship with God. For we do so by entering into loving fellowship with each other, here and now. That is also the message of the restoration. And then one other note here. You say, to keep this in mind, There are Pharisees aplenty in the LDS chapels, sitting on the stand and taking the sacrament first. They adorn the halls of BYU and high offices and write books about the one true church. Others speak at symposia and philosophize and commiserate together over how the church has abandoned them and how everyone else is wrong but them. Perhaps it's time to bring back the well-worn phrase of justification by grace through faith in Christ. It has been so silent in our ears for so long that perhaps now it can have a salient saving effect among us once again. What I want to say is that this doctrine of Paul, that we are found in Christ by having faith in Christ, and that God's people is now defined by those who have faith in Christ and have begun the journey of growing in the grace of Christ therefore growing into the stature and image of Christ and the light of Christ. I mean, this is the very center of Christianity. We now have a new life living in us. We've invited Christ to share life with us. And in order to grow in it, in this kind of a life, what it requires is to put down the books, don't listen to podcasts only, listen to these, but forget everybody else, and Go out and and listen to the Spirit about the kind things that you can do for people, the simple notes of thanks to them or recognition of how great they are, the smiles that you can give to them and the hugs, the sidewalks that that you can take the snow and and take it off for them, or um, I guess we would say just shovel their logs, or, you know, whatever it is that you can do to manifest your love for other people. It means becoming conscious of the people around us and doing what we can to manifest the love of Christ so that our hands are his hands. That's what this is really about, and Paul's doctrine is a profound recognition of that. James, the brother of Jesus' reminder and kick in the butt about it is so important, and the, the expressions in the Book of Mormon about those who have entered into covenant with Christ and what we're called to do are just beautiful expressions of this simple doctrine, this simple fact, we have been called to love one another. It's that simple. Okay, great. Well, I think we can conclude there. Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought.com.